Hi, I'm Joss Whedon. I wrote and directed this mess, this film, and uh, so I'm going to provide you with uh, exciting commentary on it if you have, in fact, turned on this commentary track. If you've done it by accident, I recommend that you turn it off right away. Well, here we begin, and we begin with doing something funky with the company logo, which is, of course, everybody's favorite thing to do. They did it in Waterworld, and uh, my personal favorite, Edward Scissorhands, they did it to the 20th Century Fox logo. We were so many. We found a new I suppose I should talk a little bit about the genesis of this film. I will interrupt it, though, to admire some of the architecture coming up. The mission statement of the film was to take what had been a TV series that uh, very few people saw. This is the architecture I was talking about. We looked at some structures in Germany and Holland that were very contemporary and tried to make a utopia that actually looked utopian instead of just tall. I was excited by that. In building this story, I had a very difficult task because I had a TV show that um, I had already done that I didn't want to have to repeat or contradict, so I had a lot of explaining to do. Nine characters who already knew each other, an established world with a lot of different layers and a lot of different conflicts and a lot of history. But if you sit people down and explain things like that for 20 minutes, on the 21st minute they go away, so or possibly on the 14th. So the idea was to get a lot of exposition out without making it dull. Part of that became the idea of constantly shifting our expectations of where we were. So what seemed like typical beginning of a science fiction movie narration turns out to be a simple classroom scene um, in a moment will turn out to be uh, that the classroom scene is actually just a dream sequence and we are in fact in a scary lab sequence with some action, um, and that will in turn turn out to be a holographic sort of flashback watched by the villain. All of this is um, done to keep feeding information to the viewer while still unsettling and keeping them interested. Subconscious implant suggestions. It's a little startling to see at first, but the results are spectacular. Especially in this case, River Tam is our star pupil. It works thematically, of course, because of River, because it all comes through the mind of River. River became the narrator for this film. I, I described it at the beginning as um, Mal's story as told by River, and since her mind is somewhat fractured, the idea that the whole prologue of this movie is somewhat uh, distended in time is... Uh, thematic and relates to her state of being. Once we get to Serenity, you'll see we have not only a very clear idea of where we are, but uh, a very long take um, where we never cut, and it's done not to show off, but in fact to establish a sense of safety in space. Talk a little bit about this scene. First of all, this location happens to be where the Blue Hand men chased uh, Simon and River in Ariel. They added some walls and obviously some machines, but uh, they were very excited about the location. They took me to it, and I said, yes, it is lovely. It's just like one of the central planets. In fact, it's so much like one of the central planets that we used it in episode 8 of the show. So I made sure that they hid any resemblance. It's Simon. Please. It's Simon. The Doctor, I will, I will speak about in a second, played by Michael Hitchcock, um, a big favorite of mine from the Christopher Guest movies, Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show. Simon. They know you've come. 
and it's Picard and the guy from the Fine Young Cannibals. That means they're in trouble. This hallway is actually right outside that room. One of the door walls we had to build in order to do the next stunt. Unfortunately, they built it wrong. It was six inches too long. So the thing on the right that her foot is on was added and uh, the paint was still drying when she put her foot on it uh, because um, we, uh, we had a little uh, mismeasurement. Now this set, this shot here, that's every inch of the set. That's CGI. Interesting thing, uh, you know, we didn't have that much money for sets, and so we built them up through CGI, but uh, we did have a little bit more money than uh, this. What happened was uh, they built it on a four-foot platform, and I never really found out why. Uh, they showed me a little foam core model of it and said, see, it's on this four-foot platform. And I said, well, we don't need the platform. Let's just build it all the way straight to the ground so we can, uh, so we can enjoy uh, a little more set to work with. And they said, no, we've already built it. And I said, next time, can, can we build the little foam core model before we build the actual set? It's a little odd thing to do, actually. Excuse me. So, I've taken us now, finally, into the, uh, the last part of the cold open, the introduction of the villain. One of the first images that occurred to me was the, the idea of him coming through the holograph, and we matched it up digitally so that his eyes come right through hers. His connection to her is something that uh, is very uh, important to me thematically also, although we don't stress it as much as I did in the first draft where everybody talked forever. I sort of trimmed some of that, but I was always interested in their connection because he is so intuitive uh, as to be almost psychic himself. He has a lot in common with River. He's a perfect product of the uh, the Alliance, or rather, what's wrong with the Alliance. It's not quite so simple. I'm well aware of that. There was no way that I... This is the character that I added for the movie, obviously. The nine regulars from the show were all in it, and they were all going to be on the same side, and so the studio insisted that uh, I needed a villain who would really register and uh, what I decided I needed was a fellow who was so kind and so decent and so caring uh, that um, you actually would start to root for him right before he was going to massacre everybody because the situation is even less somebody who believed so strongly in what he was doing that he would do anything the exact opposite of course of the hero and uh, in casting Chuatel uh, Ejifor, we found you know the perfect person because he brings such depth and soulfulness and regret to everything he does. You understand this is not a mustache twirler. This is a guy with an agenda that he considers perfectly legitimate, although it does include a certain amount of genocide, and he is in fact not entirely well. He is nevertheless reasonable, understanding, and in his own way very honorable which to me makes for a much more interesting villain. As I said, uh, Michael Hitchcock from the, um, the Guffman movie and, and many others, I tend to cast comedians where I can in dramatic roles uh, because obviously comedy is the hard one. And if somebody can do that, it's common that they can do the other. Uh, he gave a great read and I loved working this scene out with him because the difference between what he was in the scene with Simon and what he is now is, is very nicely done by him, some very subtle ticks. He's a, a dream to work with and, and very fun and really embodies this fella. On their swords. Well, unfortunately, I forgot to bring a sword. 
the sword moment. When I was trying to figure out this villain, the sword moment is what did it for me. Uh, the idea, I literally had him say they would throw themselves on their swords before I realized he was going to pull that sword out. Once he did, I said, okay, now I understand this guy. He needs to do it personally. He needs to do it up close. He needs to do it in a gentlemanly fashion. That is what separates him from other people. He has such a strong code of honor that he would literally make this guy fall on his sword. And then, and this is both the sweetest and creepiest thing you could possibly do, he will try and comfort him as he kills him. Once I had that moment figured out in this prologue, I had no more trouble writing this character. That kind of belief is just so scary. All of them. This hall was designed to have a kind of Kafka-esque feel to it, you know, endless uh, bits of um, information stored in all of those things. And this one shot is the one that really, because we used a wider lens and made it seem longer than it was, really gave you that feeling. This whole set was kind of difficult to design because we had to work around the fact that we couldn't uh, show this holograph that often. In fact, you'll see this set again rebuilt as the, um, the ship where the hologram of Dr. Koran appears. This title treatment, by the way, was added uh, at the last minute originally. It was just going to fade up. But, um, uh, and I had always imagined that he would speak and there would be silence and then uh, it would fade up. And uh, But then we had a title company do something that we thought was a little more dramatic and blended in well to this. One of the hardest things, not just this shot, but uh, we're listening now to the Serenity theme by David Newman. And I had very specific instructions about what I wanted, which I don't think really helped because, of course, I didn't have the music. I just had the instructions. He went through a lot of concepts for themes, but um, he did an amazing job of finding something very mournful and very homemade. That was really my intent uh, that spoke of serenity. All the music before was supposed to be kind of a little electronic and a little distancing and this was the first time you when you hear that solo cello and then the other cellos come in this is when you know you're home and that homemade feel has a lot to do with my vision of the future in this movie which is that you know everybody has what they can carry and nothing more they are pioneers but he did it uh david that is without getting into any kind of sort of hokey version of americana which i love very much it's gonna get pretty interesting define interesting oh god oh god we're all gonna die now, once we've cut inside here and, and Nathan and Alan have started talking, the keen eye will notice, and not everybody did, uh, that we don't actually have a single cut in the movie for four and a half minutes. This was, as I said before, to give you a sense of safety in the space. I think when you see people on a screen doing things uh, that are they are obviously actually doing and you're not cutting in between them and choosing performances and disorienting the viewer at all, but just sort of letting things unfold. Uh, it has a kind of veracity to it that I think you don't even notice. Obviously, I'm not trying to do a shot that says, oh, look what we can do with a Steadicam, although I have to give huge props to Mark Moore, our A camera operator who worked the Steadicam, because in a total of 45 takes, uh, he slipped once, and it was going backwards up some stairs. And that was the only camera problem we ever had. You told me those entry couplings would hold for another week. But the whole point was... 
First of all, to make people feel safe. Second of all, to show the, the layout of the ships, because the ship is obviously the 10th character, and um, to give people a real sense of where they are by going through the entire ship room by room. And, of course, meeting every character. Now, as I said, this was a very difficult screenplay to write, and part of that was because, you know, all of these characters, and there are nine from the TV series alone that I had brought with me, uh, already know each other. Um, structurally, that's a nightmare. That's writing Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and uh, saying, Snow White uh, is in trouble from the Queen. Cut to a year later, she's living with dwarfs. When you introduce people who already know each other, uh, it's much more difficult to hide that. This boat is my home. You all are guests of. And to hide this, that whip pan just there to Simon, that's where we hid the cut. There was a dissolve between the two sets because although I did build as I had on the show, the sets, well, I didn't build them myself. We hired people to do that. I did build them contiguously so that they were all one and we could go anywhere we wanted. Um, we couldn't obviously build them on top of each other. So there were two sets side by side on the same stage. And we built that one hallway in both of them. And when we whipped over to Simon, we snuck in a cut that uh, so far nobody's noticed and I probably shouldn't have told you about. Honestly, Doctor, I think we may really crash this time anyway. Do you understand what I have gone through to keep River away from the Alliance? I do. The fact we here have been Infirmary, the Blue Room, a big part of the show didn't get much use here in the movie, but it does uh, give things a nice feel. You understand Simon's space is very cold. Simon, I always kept in blues and, and uh, purples and in a very alliance uh, color scheme because unlike Mal, with whom he's always conflicting, he does sort of represent the alliance even though he's on the run from it. Uh, he represents, you know, a kind of perfectly handsome, brilliant, uh, well-meaning person, the thing that the alliance is supposed to be about. Uh, and Mal represents everything they're not about. Uh, he's brown, he's earthy, he's homemade, and he's kind of a schmo a lot of the time. When I wrote the script, because I knew I was going to do this oneer, uh, this long shot, and because I knew the set so well from the series, I knew that they would have to pull out this wall uh, so that Mark could step on a crane arm uh, with his steady cam, and that we could be doing this beyond the catwalk. It's very convenient to know your set that well, so that it was literally in the script that we would pull this wall, so that we could get to this final image, over which I always intended to put my name. Now we're coming to a scene uh, that has the distinction of being our one big reshoot scene, and it's this one right here. These crates were in the back of the cargo bay, and I remembered that when I realized I needed this scene. So we decamped to a set they were building for 40-year-old Virgin, where Jack Green was lighting his next movie, and shot this scene, and it's designed for River to sort of pass the movie off to Mal, because what I found from audiences who hadn't seen the show was they didn't know they were supposed to be watching Mal, even though he was at the center of the Steadicam shot. So I took a moment for her to say, you're important and I've got my eye on you, so that the audience would as well. You see the crates in the background of the set. They, we just piled them up again to do that, that reshoot. That's something I asked for when I'd seen the cut of the movie and said, there's a moment that's missing. And we were able to get that uh, very quickly. Obviously, this is their, uh, their new mule. In the series, we had a little uh, ATV. It was uh, 
very delightful and useful, but uh, this is a movie, and if I wasn't going to have a hovercraft, well, then I was going to take my football and go home, because you got to have a hovercraft. The hovercraft itself has kind of a tortured history as well, but before I get into it, I just want to give huge props to uh, Jewel State for the moment uh, of absolute devotion and sweetness followed by in what is approximately two frames sadness tells you exactly what you need to know about her relationship with uh with simon so the problem with the mule uh, it was always too big for me and i kept having them make it smaller and smaller i was like we will not get the sensation of floating and of danger if they're not in something small enough and when they finally showed me the uh, finished design it had five seats in it, and there is actually a, a scene in the script where uh, Mal says, well, you know, the mule won't run with five. That's why he kills a guy and leaves him to die and then shoots him so the reavers don't eat him. He actually says the line, mule won't run with five, and they gave me a five-seater. So we had to do a little redesign there, but uh, I kept feeling like the thing was, was so big I couldn't get in a, in a shot with my actors, and since I shot the whole thing with my actors, uh, that was a big priority for me. Y'all want to be looking very intently at your own belly buttons. As your heads start to rise, violence is going to ensue. I do like the design of this station, though. It's a nice old-fashioned feel, but without being, again, too Western and hokey. She's locked up. Uh, inevitably, River's Feet. Anybody who's seen the TV show knows that River's Feet are probably the 11th character in the movie after Serenity. The idea that she was useful in the heist because she could hear people's thoughts and spot trouble was something I'd had early on. This woke me up in the middle of the night, this shot. I thought, I need to do this. We called it the roller coaster shot, where we went down from her to the ground where they were. I thought we were going to have to do it on a track because a steady cam usually can't go from high to low, but Mark Moore was able to do it. Um, with his steady cam, and uh, it could uh, be a little smoother, but I still think it has a great elegance to it, and it really puts you in River's mindset. Uh, I was really happy when that shot worked out. Someone who gets other people killed. A lot of people didn't get that Glenn Howerton here was the uh, the young man who runs out and asks for them to take him with them and gets shot for his troubles. At last, we can retire and give up this life of crime. This gag pretty much speaks for itself. Uh, and I love Jack Green uh, lighting there, too, because uh, that lever is just visible enough to show you that there's a lever. He's not overdoing it. Listen to the fine, mellifluous tones of that fellow's voice. War's long done. All just folk now. Listen up! That's truly a great actor. An incredible voice. The, uh... POV of where he's looking down is, in fact, uh, another set uh, on the other side of the stage. Because uh, we um, had to split them up because we couldn't dig a pit and put one on top of the other again. That fellow there, Chuck, he was actually starred in my uh, brother Zach's senior thesis film, Wesleyan. Uh, and the casting people brought him in, uh, not even knowing that, uh, that, he had that, that I had seen him in that. He brings a great quality to that role. What's going on? This uh, arm we did just with a jack holding a, a camera and uh, on a, just a regular dolly because we 
didn't have an arm that day, and he did a great job of hiding that fact. As we hide the fact that there are only three walls in this particular set. If you watch carefully in this shot, I believe you can actually, the next shot, this one, you can actually see off the set and onto the studio. That's something we probably, again, shouldn't mention, but I think it's kind of cool. You might also want to count the number of people who pass by Mal as he's talking to this guy. Uh, sometimes uh, the footage matches just perfectly, and sometimes uh, it does the other thing. a really important character moment for me, uh, for Mal. Uh, it comes from movies like Alzana's Raid. It comes from the idea that uh, sometimes uh, the closest thing to mercy is uh, killing someone, and it comes from the idea that Mal uh, is in a bad place. You know, he was uh, in many ways the hero of the TV show, and we needed to put him in a place where um, he had an arc, where he didn't go from hero to hero because I wasn't making Air Force One. So having him kill somebody uh, was a, a very important way to say uh, he's not paying attention. He's not. His priorities are out of whack. That last line, by the way, uh, faster would be better. This is one of the reasons why I love working with Nathan so much. I went up to him and said, say something Mal would say. I just felt uh, we needed a line there, and I was in a hurry, and I hadn't written one, and so he just improv faster would be better, which was such a good Mal line that I was like, why did I slave over that script for so many months? Why don't you just say stuff? He's extraordinary that way. He can really become the character. A new skiff chase was an extremely difficult thing to do. Keep moving, honey. We're coming to you. In the filming, it was uh, handled extremely well. Dan Sudik, our uh, uh, special effects guy, built several rigs that could turn and move, one built from the side, one built from the front, so that we could get a lot of close-ups of our actors uh, moving against an actual background that we shot in um, California. Uh, it was on Templin Highway, I remember now. Um, so a lot of that ground underneath Jane had to be added. That shot there, that push-in, that's a Jack Green special. He set it up and said, do you like this? And I just said, I'm going to pretend that I did that. There's a few of these in the movie where Jack just came up with the beauty frame and then I get to take credit for it. Unless, of course, I say something stupid during a DVD commentary, but what are the odds of that? Anyhow, I've seen a lot of, you know, chases. Uh, I think of the, the pod race in episode one where everything's digitalized and everything's... It's not so much that it's digital, although when you have hair like Zoe's uh, and Rivers, it really shows up when you have a fake background, but uh, that it was so airless. I really wanted the sense that these guys were there, that uh, the stuff was going by them. And... Um, what limited me was that, uh, with the exception of that particular shot and a couple of others, we really couldn't do any shots um, where things were swerving or going in different directions because uh, we were limited by that. I think uh, this was definitely one of those sequences where I had a bit of a learning curve. Uh, unfortunately, I had that learning curve after I'd already shot it. But what I do love about it is the the fact that we are, they are really there. Yes, they made uh, um, one of them on a Lazy Susan just for that one gag. 
the fact that they're all really there, really interacting with the background, makes things uh, just a little bit more believable. That shot there uh, from overhead we added at the last minute to really sell the connection between the outside of the ship and the inside of the ship so that you really felt like the two were together. River? I swallowed a bug. That's one of those moments where the smoke comes in so perfectly on cue uh, and everybody's happy all the time. Is he okay? Again, my favorite thing, uh, you know, is always going to be taking a moment of comedy and then throwing something horrible in the middle of it, or vice versa, just to keep things uh, from ever getting dull. Hello? Put the widest lens on the wash that I could there to really make him feel all tiny and alone, because I thought he was so cute. Set course for Beaumont. Establishing their marriage was one of the hardest things because uh, we just didn't have time for anybody to be in their bunk, snogging, or doing anything like that. So the fact that he and Zoe had very few scenes together, uh, but yeah, we still had to establish the fact that they were married. That was uh, a bit of a problem, and in some early versions, some people had trouble even understanding that they were. But we put in some footage of the two of them that helped with that. As soon as River gets her share of the bounty... Let's not do anything hasty. No, shiny. Again, uh, in order to uh, take uh, from the series, which where everybody had more or less become, if not buddies, uh, kind of on the same page, and take us to a movie where we don't deny that that had happened, gave the idea that uh, Mal has... Things have gotten bad enough, partially because Simon and River are on, are on board, that Mal is, has lost his compass. He's lost Inara, he's lost Book, both of whom were on the ship with them in the series, and now Simon and River have decided to leave as well because Mal is bit by bit sort of pulling himself apart. Man has to cut loose. This uh, has been described as a darker version of, of Mal than what was there before, but um, it really is just sort of, you know the way he would react to those circumstances. And I needed to take him to a place where he says, you know, I don't care about you, even though previously he had indicated that he cared about them because, and the way to do that was to make things worse for him and his reaction to things getting worse is to be cornered. I should have done the girl, or you, or Jane. When we did that reshoot of him and River, I received a uh, email from Mary Parent, the invaluable executive on the film. And you'll notice this close up here. Uh, where he explains what's wrong. She said, you're going to need something in the four-deck hall where he explains more clearly what is wrong and what he needs. And that close-up was shot right after we did uh, the scene of him and River, uh, not actually in that hall, but in front of a black curtain. And I told Jack, I've gotten this memo. Uh, we need to do this new piece of dialogue. And during this piece of dialogue, they're going to leave atmosphere. So you need to give me fire, and then you need to take me into space. And uh, he did it. This is a moment that had come out that we got to re-add to show a little gross. intimacy between them. Anyway, Jack uh, lit the entire thing inside of 25 minutes um, with those instructions because he's that fast. And um, while he lit it, I wrote it, and Nathan memorized it. 
fair fight. And it's a tough piece of dialogue to put in your mouth. And uh, it's one of the great things about working with both Jack and Nathan uh, is that everybody can do everything really quickly. And uh, it did, in fact, make the movie better, which is one of the great things about working with Mary Parent. So when everybody's firing on all cylinders and you get things uh, really clicking, it, uh, it's a great feeling. Eating people alive? This uh, little monologue of Jane's is, is one, of my, one of my favorite things. Uh, his I'll Kill a Man in a Fair Fight monologue is, to me, very delightful. It's very him. This was a scene that I was afraid might get cut, but uh, I couldn't bear to. So we arranged things. We cut it down somewhat, and we arranged things so that it, it flowed well in the movie because it's, it just gives you so much of who Jane and Kaylee are. We have to get adulpated ourselves. We stay on this boat much longer. And besides, I get to cut to river up, upside down on a catwalk, and if I can ever do that, I'm always happy. And then, of course, the dissolve between her and Mal. Basically, you know, just showed, again, she's watching him in a very uh, sort of didactic fashion. And what's he watching? Well, of course, Inara. The idea of the movie postcard seemed like a perfectly natural and realistic uh, thing and a good way to use a flashback structure. In this movie, one of the things uh, that I had trouble with at the very beginning was the idea that Mal is kind of a Western fellow and, and um, River's living in kind of a noir. And how do I reconcile those? You know, I spoke to my professor, uh, Janine Basinger, about it. She said, well, first of all, go to the noir westerns, you know, Pursued, The Furies, uh, Johnny Guitar. Um, there's a lot of movies that combine uh, both genres, and you shouldn't forget that. And uh, the woman who uh, was left behind because uh, the hero was too uh, out of touch with his feelings, well, of course, that belongs in both genres. So uh, the idea of the Inara postcard and the Inara being out of his life now does work perfectly and kind of helps connect those two genres. Don't pay anybody in advance. Obviously, neither of those genres is a sci-fi action movie, but um, that's sort of the whole point. I would pause to say that that delivery of the Capuchin line from uh, Jewel is uh, also among my favorites. River, do you want to stay with them? The point, of course, is always to keep people guessing and keep them wondering. The, uh, the trick with River, we know that there's a lot going on in her, and we're not sure what when she says this we don't know is she uh predicting that somebody bad is coming or is there something wrong with her she's always a little bit off uh the idea that uh, all the screens are watching everybody was uh very useful um came from our, my first meeting with the production designer he had created a great big all-encompassing alliance screen where I had thought of more sort of a cheesy little TV. And then it made me realize that if everybody's watching everybody, then that'll be the best way for the operative to find them. And the idea that, uh, you know, TV has become something that's watching you as you watch it is something we're not far from anyway. Going on a year now, I ain't had nothing. Twix my nethers weren't run on batteries. Oh, God. I can't know that. I could stand to hear a little more. You had to care for anybody's heart. You knew he was going to leave. You've never been but a way station to those two. And how do you know what he feels? 
Oh, he's got River to worry on, but he's still going to show She has such a sweet insouciance about her that uh, it's not uh, it's not exactly tawdry, even if it is a little blunt. Now, one of the things uh, I thought to myself uh, when I realized I needed a scene between Mal and his employers uh, was that I wanted to do something that was a little bit larger than uh, what I'd been used to. And I fixated on the idea of finding identical twins. And uh, I just like the idea of identical twins. I think it makes things just a little, a little bit odd without saying anything about it. And so we found Yan and Raphael Feldman. And Davis. And they're two of the most delightful fellows. Um, and I always feel I did them a bit of a disservice because ultimately the scene didn't turn out to be as important as I thought it was. I wanted to explain that Mal was at the bottom of the food chain, for those who didn't know it, and uh, I had these boys to do it. But ultimately, uh, there was a lot of stuff that uh, became, dare I say, a DVD extra because it wasn't really advancing the plot. And I kind of knew it when I was filming it, but I found them so diverting. Yen and Raphael are hilarious. And don't even get them started doing their dueling walk-ins because they will literally do all of the dead zone for you. It's, it's just scary. But in the end of the day, a lot of their stuff got cut out because it was time to get to the point. And uh, that's what we're about to do here. We'll talk more about what had to be cut out uh, in a little bit. Another thing uh, that from the start was on my mind was the idea that uh, in, in addition to just watching people, they are actually sending signals through the TV. Uh, not since the blipverts on Max Headroom has the TV been quite so insidious. And uh, that uh, the trigger that they need to put on her lies in there. This effect, this lighting effect, we did take all the light out of the room and put it on her face from the TV, but this particular effect, as you'll see, it continues here, was done in the DI, uh, the color timer. Walter put it in the dream sequences, and Jack and I liked it so much, I said, I think this will really add to her um, sense of alienation, and it's gorgeous. So, as you can see, we've gone back to normal. Just there, when then that man hit her, I have to tell you that uh, that was actually a digital effect. She was doing so well, but uh, the camera picked up a missed uh, swing from one of the stuntmen. So, uh, we digitally lowered his arm so we could stay in the shot because uh, to show that uh, Summer was doing everything. Obviously, this is one of the biggest things in the movie for me was the fact that she does 95% of her stunts herself and we could have long, long takes of her fighting people that were her. She is a dancer and uh, was therefore, we were able to train her in ways that, uh, you know, other action heroes simply cannot uh, do. Uh, including this kick coming up, which uh, Chad Stelsky, the stunt coordinator, said, uh, she can kick a guy from behind around a pole. Can we build a pole? I was like, yes, I think we can. Because I love that so much. The fight itself I divided into three sections. The first being the, um, the one that's kind of in her mind, so you get the idea of how disassociated she is. The second where it's all just happening. And then after Mal and uh, um, Jane notice, the third uh, brings in music and heightens the tension as much as possible. And then we go from long takes of what she can do to heavily intercut fighting to show Mal trying to get his uh, gun chit and her and back and forth and back and forth and building to the climax. Boom, 
and in comes Simon. That's, again, one of the most Western moments. And that uh, bit um, from the time it starts getting heavily edited uh, has not changed since the very first cut. Uh, the editor, Lisa Lassick, just nailed, as she so often does, exactly uh, the rhythm that I needed. And uh, it's a beautiful piece. Never as beautiful as actually seeing the stars do their own work, which uh, Nathan also does. In fact, pretty much all my actors did all their own work. Stunt people uh, were mostly working as reavers or alliance people. And our actors' stunt doubles uh, got to spend a lot of time in craft services. Uh, this was part of a uh, longer sequence. Um, I put this in at the last minute, the word volunteer. I thought that was important because uh, Jane mentions that Mal volunteered for the um, independence later, and I thought it would be nice to see it. It also tells uh, the operative a little something about him, but if you watch the DVD extras, you'll see that we did, in fact, shoot an entire scene of the operative that uh, we took out. Was pointed out to me by a friend, Carolyn Lassick, who uh, said that, uh, you know, having him standing there in a brightly lit ship, sort of droning on about the kind of person Mal was, makes him a little less frightening. Um, one of the things we found, and uh, I don't know how happy Chiwetel is about this, was that, um, you know, the less the operative uh, made his presence known, the more his presence was felt. Um, so we ended up cutting some stuff. This also is a factor of the fact that I love to hear myself write, and everybody talks too much. In case something happened. I'm not sure I get it. It's a phrase that makes That shot there, I like very much. I had Jack take the, uh, the light off of Simon when he's surrounded by everybody, so we see this sort of dark figure and our family around him because he's the one who's brought them into danger, and he's not connected to them. something might be. And they never said, and you never did ask. And that, of course, was an invaluable Jane joke, which I just talked over. But there's going to be a few of those, so you needn't fret. I brought her out here so they couldn't get Everyone's reaction there is designed very specifically. Zoe puts her hand to her gun just in case there's trouble. Wash looks nobly concerned. And this was the moment, the eye-opening moment, uh, not eye-opening for the audience. It was an actual eye-opening moment where you saw eyes open. I thought she was getting better. Where we introduced really the concept that uh, they might have made a terrible mistake um, bringing her on board and, and that uh, this might not be Snow White. It might, in fact, be Alien. And she might be the problem. It also was a uh, structural problem that I didn't notice the first time around, which was that I had Mal bring her back on the ship because it just never occurred to me that he would do anything else. And then, of course, I was like, well, well, you know, he could have just left her and then, well, you wouldn't have a movie, but still, uh, why wouldn't he? So I put that question into Jane's mouth because Jane is often the person who asks the reasonable thing that nobody else wants to talk about, however uncouth he may be. Um, and I realized that in the same way, I love to do little things like that, in the same way that uh, I had never considered not bringing her back on board, Mal had never considered not bringing her back on board because she was River, and although he's never going to admit it, she's family, she's helpless, and he's going to do that. And so uh, what was a weakness became quite a strength, um, I think, uh, in the movie, because thematically that's Mal's whole thing. He can't admit that he cares about people, and then obviously by the end of the movie uh, he not only takes self-sacrificing uh, and decisive action, but he even goes on about love for a while, and that's, well, his arc.
good. Uh, Mr. Universe is something new to the movie. It was designed basically uh, not just as the Prince of Exposition, but um, as uh, a way to find the right place for the climax of the movie to take place. So we had uh, that giant shot of the ion cloud and then his little satellite moon inside of it. We did that because we were setting up uh, a location that we would have the final battle take place in. And so you wanted to be familiar with it to an extent so that uh, it didn't... Uh, come out of nowhere and you didn't feel like uh, the climax uh, had no resonance. So we put the sort of beating heart of, if not the rebellion, of everything that's subversive on that moon in the character of Mr. Universe, who understands that everything is, you know, being televised, everything is being manipulated, and uh, unlike Mal and the others, isn't running away from it, but immersing himself in it and designing his little room with all of the screens. Uh, if we could have had a hundred more, I would have taken them, but uh, it still has a great feel to it. And uh, David Krumholtz is another uh, actor who's largely known for comedy, or was until he became a great big TV star. But uh, he read for the role, and I, it's a difficult role, and the first people who read for it made me think that uh, I had, in fact, written it very badly. And then... Uh, David read, and I was like, what more can I do with this character? And I realized I wasn't even listening to the audition halfway through. I was just trying to think of more things I could do with the character, because in my mind it was cast. Uh, he is extremely charming, yet intelligent-seeming. He's a character, but in all the best senses of the word, and, and a consummate professional. Although the biggest props probably have to go to Nectar Rose behind him, who managed to hold that pose uh, for two days of shooting to find a little friend and founder they have do you all know what it is you're carrying <sighs> this is one of my very favorite scenes I believe the first things we shot uh, when we came back on board serenity uh, were in this storage locker, which is, in fact, physically right outside the kitchen. I, I did connect them in a shot at one point, but uh, the movie running as it did a little bit long at first, I had to cut that connection and, and just uh, have Mal step outside. But this is one of those things. Summer was very nervous about the scene, obviously. It's one of her biggest scenes. I never know what I'm saying. There is a piece of it cut out at the end, which is uh, an extra on the DVD, where you can see that she has to go to even more places than she does here. But she and Sean both did such an extraordinary job, just in a couple of takes. And uh, it was uh, classic of both of them. She was, you know, nervous as anything. And then, you know, I don't think I can do this. And then, of course, half the crew is standing at the monitor crying sean never says a word he just goes in and uh absolutely gives it to you and uh he has i think uh one of the hardest jobs on the ship he has to be the guy who doesn't get to play the big emotion who is standing there and and just giving strength uh yet you feel everything he's going through and how much he's doing and how much he cares um, and it's uh, it's very impressive don't say that not ever 
We'll get through this. This was also lit by Jack Green uh, with, you know, uh, one light above them, one light below them. I mean, just as minimally as possible. And uh, to see it on stage, you would never have known uh, how beautiful it was going to be. Well, Jack knew, but I didn't. Or by then I did because I'd seen dailies, but I didn't know how. Uh, that shot of Inara with the operative where she's standing, um, that was in my mind from the very start as well. And it was in my mind because I wanted something, I think of it as kind of a trailer moment. I wanted something that was very, very different from uh, what I was seeing, you know, which was, you know, a lot of sort of everything is monochromatic matrix movies. And um, obviously Star Wars, you know, there's lots of deep reds and, and heavy coloring and stuff. And I didn't want to go there, but I did want something that would make a kind of bold statement of many, many worlds. And, you know, that this isn't just a, a simple, uh, you know, everything is slightly green kind of, kind of world. And, uh, I love that Vista. Um, and where she's standing, by the way, is on stage, uh, we couldn't actually afford. We looked at some locations, but we couldn't find any pretty mountains, and that is a translite of pretty mountains. Uh, but uh, I think they did a, a very nice job of making it look like an actual place out of doors. Again, another secret that I probably shouldn't have told you that'll ruin your enjoyment of the movie. I might as well tell you now, everybody in the cast was drunken and mean, and they hated each other. There, now I've completely spoiled it. It is trouble you've not known. That's my favorite shot, right there. That is a Jack Green special. That's when you remember, oh yeah, this guy lit Unforgiven. He lit Bird. You can't say enough about Jack Green. He, uh, he is probably the most underrated uh, director of photography uh, because he doesn't make his presence known. Besides the fact that he's a dream to work with and very fast, uh, which when, with, for a movie like this, on a limited budget with a limited schedule, is more important than you could possibly imagine. He makes such, such beautiful frames. Uh, these two actors have never looked cooler. Um, and again, this is done with a minimum of lighting. Jack's not afraid of his blacks. He's not afraid of negative space and dark colors and uh, shadows. And I love that because neither am I. It brings your eye to what's important and it gives the skin such incredible texture. So I think this scene above all embodies... Uh, his contribution, but uh, uh, I honestly could spend the rest of the commentary talking about it because he uh, he is so invaluable. It's of interest to me how much you seem to know about that world. Wasn't born a shepherd, man. You have to tell me about that sometime. This was the uh, inevitable. Now we will reveal uh, the shepherd's past, and uh, I thought it would be an interesting thing just for him to say, "Now." Nah. I'm not going to do that, uh, because uh, why should he give us exposition uh, when he doesn't feel like it? This was the first time we used that effect that we used in the fight for the dream. It's going to be fine. And it really gave uh, the sequence uh, a lovely feeling. I, I'd shoot a whole movie that way if I could. That double wake-up, I added in editing. 
I wanted something to indicate the idea that there's still something wrong with her mind. And we saw we had two different and really good takes of River waking up. And so I conceived the idea of the, the which is obviously not a particularly new one, but I think in that case works really well, of having her wake up and then discovering, in fact, she has not woken up. Cold. It's autumn here. Still at the training house? By the way, I'd like to apologize to all of America and countries beyond for only putting Mal uh, shirtless in one scene and then shooting him only from the clavicle up for the entire scene. That's uh, unforgivable, and I just, I got to say, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I, you know, was I, was I really even thinking at all? problem here with the locals, and I thought maybe... You could use a gun here. This was uh, an interesting thing to do. We shot Inara's side in her room. Uh, which we will see later in the training house. And we did it live. That is to say, Nathan was in the room speaking with her, and she was staring into the camera as though it were a screen. And uh, that worked out great because the energy they got off each other was terrific. And uh, one of my favorite things uh, is that uh, his line about the trunk of her stuff well that came from the fact that I needed a reason for her A to be able to change her clothes and B to have a bow and arrow now ironically you will not see a bow and arrow in this movie unless you look very carefully because uh, uh, audiences didn't react well to it and so we replaced it with a CGI bolt thrower but um, uh, the bow and arrow was in fact uh, something I needed to have I needed an excuse for it so I said oh you left something in a trunk well I thought that was about the clunkiest writing I'd ever done and then Nathan and Moranis both separately came up to me and Nathan said, you know that part where I say I didn't look in the trunk? You know I looked in that trunk. And Morena came up to me and said, you know that trunk I left? You know I left all my best smelling stuff in there and I did it on purpose. And uh, I realized, you know, they'd taken my clunky little thing and incorporated it uh, in a perfect fashion. And um, all of a sudden it's one of my favorite moments between them, the sweetness. This again, uh, this line here, uh, where he uh, makes a joke about, well, we didn't fight, it must be a trap, came from the fact that I'd written the scene and it was very sweet and very romantic, but it seemed a little out of character for the two of them. And once I'd written it, and this happens to me a lot, I did the math afterwards, and, you know, as a script doctor, you're asked to do this with other people's work, but it's uh, kind of fun to do it with your own when you say, wait a minute, how does A get to B? Why didn't they, you know, snark at each other like they usually do? Oh, because it's a trap. And that's how she's going to let him know it. So uh, that's the best part of this, is discovering amongst, you know, uh, what you've already built, uh, that there are connections and, and moments to be had, uh, sometimes from your mistakes and sometimes from just uh, the fact that you're building in a world that has so much texture and so much history that you know uh, more about these characters than, uh, than you're even going to show, and you can use that. The question is, how much do you show and how much do you leave? One thing you definitely show is Mal in a silly hat with tassels. Uh, and then you add uh, as much tassel noise in the post-production mix as you can uh, because it's, um, it's delightful. We do have Mal dressing up as a, as a woman in the series, and why I seem to be obsessed with that, I leave to you, gentle viewer. I have to say, Captain, I'm impressed the, uh, that you... standoff moment yourself. between the two men. In that outfit. And, of course, one of them's in a dress. Well, it's a rope. I've no doubt. 
What are you doing? I'm praying for you, Mel. She's very thoughtful. But I mean it when I say I've known... This was um, very difficult uh, to begin with. Uh, There's a lot of uh, shading in the light that uh, there was a miscommunication. It wasn't there, and it took a long time to relight the set so that we'd get that sense that everything was kind of through a scrim and people are coming in and out of darks. Uh, Part of that is that I wanted that sensual sense of space in Inara's room that is very intimate, and part of it works very well for the confrontation between these two. Yes, I've read a poem. Try not to faint. I've seen your war record. I know how you must feel about the Alliance. And of course, needless to say, it was uh, even longer um, before I I trimmed it down because uh, I love to make with the Yak Yak, uh, but then audiences love to go to the bathroom, so I have to cut some of the Yak Yak out. But uh, um, the way these two square off um, and uh, the way the light hits them is is something that I think Jack did perfectly because once this set was lit, we could just shoot and shoot and shoot, and that's uncommon, again, in movies. In movies, usually every shot you know, takes an hour at least to set up and we could run and gun and get all the angles we needed and really set everything up and do it so that once we got into it, it was uh, efficient. And it also helps the actors because they're staying in character. They're staying in a scene. They're not doing their little bit and then waiting, you know, for days and days. Although Anara did have to wait days and days for that close-up because uh, that was one of the few times we got dailies back and she was out of focus. So we did shoot that uh, the second day after we'd already shot the conversation. The infamous pulse beacon. This is a big rule with me, is very simply. Uh, if the uh, good guys are going to escape from the bad guys, try not to make the bad guys look like idiots. Um, and so I had to devise something that... Uh, would make Mal a little bit smarter than we did that again later with the crybabies that send out the different NAVSAT signals. I want to resolve this like civilized men. Now, of course, this is a moment that's well known from the trailers. Mal shoots the operative. Uh, and um, uh, you will find that between the operative, uh, the young man in uh, Lilac, and the pilot in Haven, uh, who killed Book and everybody, that Mal shoots uh, a total of three unarmed men in the movie. That was simply uh, not just a reaction to the infamous Greedo incident in the uh, revised Star Wars, but also a way of saying that this guy, A, is very pragmatic, and B, is not exactly anybody's idea of a hero. What, no backup? This fight uh, contains almost no doubles, and no animals were harmed during it, except Nathan. He could take a punch in an extraordinarily uh, good fashion. Uh, He prides himself on it, although when I said, Nathan, my God, you really made some of those hits look real. Uh, He said, yeah, Uh, that's because some of them were. Uh, You know, it's one of the rules is that you almost never... I like this. It's very street to me that he would wrap that around his head. I liked putting that in. You almost never put two actors together. You always put an actor with a stuntman so that one person is in complete control. But Chuatel and Nathan had both done so much work uh, and were so anxious to get in it that uh, most of that fight we did with the two of them which inevitably means that um, you get tagged every now and then. And uh, so Nathan, uh, he could fake pain, or he could just use that pain. 
The Alliance isn't some evil empire. This is not the Grand Arena. This was a moment that uh, I worried about. Um, the preciseness of her timing, the fact that he set himself exactly where he needed to be. To me, a little cheesy, but it is a nice hero moment for Inara, which I did think we needed because I didn't want anybody to think that she was just a damsel in distress. And like the operative and uh, River, uh, she is a product of the Alliance. She is so, by nature of her job, intuitive that she too knows exactly not only that things are going to go wrong, but when. Um, and I do like that about her. So that helps justify this is the Navsat thing that I think, again, gives you an excuse um, for the heroes to get away in what should be a simple operation for the bad guys. You give an audience just enough logic to get them through, and I think they're grateful for it. They don't want to hear, we can give the aliens a virus. They want to hear how, even if it's just a little bit of gobbledygook, scientifically speaking, just enough to believe it. We have every reason to be afraid. Why? Because this guy beat up. One of the things about that sequence, too, uh, it's heavily trimmed. Uh, there was a thing, and I have Drew Goddard to thank for this, my fellow writer, a thing where Mal fooled some Alliance soldiers uh, into thinking a dead grenade was a live one so he could get into the shuttle without killing anybody. And it's also a DVD extra, but it kind of made the Alliance look a little bit uh, stupid and pathetic and easy to trick. And uh, so um, it went out as well. We just have them shooting down the mountain. Then there was a joke about Mal uh, falling over. There were a couple of Mal jokes that I cut there. And um, the reason for that, uh, Stacy Snyder, the head of Universal, said very simply, look, people who haven't seen this character before, he just got the tar kicked out of him by the operative. And then you make literally four jokes in a row at his expense, including this one. You have to trim that because you're going to lose your audience. They're not going to buy that he's any kind of hero if you just keep beating him down like that. Of course, making fun of Mal is both my and Nathan's favorite thing to do. So um, I realized that I had uh, overdone it a little bit. Uh, I was sorry to see some good jokes go, but that's not the point. The point is to keep the audience with him. Oh, that's right. This scene contains, obviously, some of the nicest conflict between them all. It also contains the what is Miranda, um, my absolute least favorite thing in uh, movies, mystery movies, was the name of a woman that turns out to be a ship. It's not a woman. It's a ship. And in a way, I seem to have committed that very thing with the Miranda, but Miranda seemed like the perfect name for the planet. And so I made sure that nobody just assumed it was a woman, but that they all just wondered what it might be. Because, uh, obviously, Miranda, I'm talking about uh, The Tempest and her famous line, Oh, Brave New World, that has such people in it. You came to the training house looking for a fight. I came looking for you. I just want to know who I'm dealing with. I've seen too many versions of you. To this scene also was heavily trimmed because um, there was a great deal of talking that people didn't need to... Uh, to do, but that one line from Mal was very important to me, because uh, what he's basically saying is, if I actually become somebody who cares about things, uh, I might become a bigger monster than I am right now. And that's uh, a piece of information that I find vital, because when he does care about things, he asks the crew to lay their lives on the line, and if you've seen the movie, you know that some of them do. 
And that's the thing that I find so fascinating is that the, the person who believes, like the operative, uh, is capable of terrible things. A leader is by nature something of a monster and Mal has failed to be a leader to this crew, uh, partially because that's one of the things he's tried to put behind himself, that kind of deadly conviction. So when he says, you'll see something new, and we do, we're all cheering for him. Uh, we all, you know, this is what we wanted, but at the same time, be careful what you want because um, it's never that simple. And if there's anything I've tried to convey, it's that nothing is simple. One of the things that I uh, did with this movie always was try and hide the intent of everything I did. That is to say, I didn't want the evil empire with Darth Vader. The Alliance is largely a benevolent force. It's just out of its depth in these tiny planets uh, with their own cultures that it doesn't know how to control and shouldn't be trying. And uh, the operative uh, does actually work for good. He hasn't gone over to the dark side and he doesn't wear all black, uh, at least not at the beginning. And so... Um, you know, it's the same in the music, trying to hide, uh, not make it sound bombastic and manipulative, but at the same time hitting everything, uh, trying to hide the cinematography, making it look beautiful without making it look lit, um, making uh, everything bigger than life while pretending that it's actual size and only really towards the end of the movie uh, admitting that we're actually in a movie. This is the mandate that I worked with and it's a very very fine line to walk and made everybody's job really hard I don't think anybody really liked me by the end of this uh, and that includes me um, I don't think I'll be working with myself again uh, we didn't get along we're going for a nice shuttle ride Is it time to admire Gina's forearms? Because I think it is. Um, everybody really looked their best for this movie. It was a lovely thing. And of course, uh, that low angle of uh, Adam Baldwin. Well, any chance I have to put the camera as low as possible and slap on a 14 lens on, on Adam, I'll do it. Because uh, uh, he looks fabulous like that. It's so Jane. Lenses uh, are a big thing with me. My particular favorite is the, uh, in television has always been a 17, which gives you a real sense of space. I think it's what Kubrick used in Eyes Wide Shut. I have to pause to say this shot here, um, I actually envisioned uh, just being right below her. It's Jack Green who tilted the camera like that. And uh, once again, uh, Jack uh, making my movie cooler than I was going to make it. And uh, there's actually a, publicity photo and you can see me under summer with my arms out going here's the frame and behind me Jack is standing with his arms out tilted slightly clearly getting it while I don't it's my favorite picture because uh, it makes me look like a dope um, but uh, Jack being invaluable there so to pick up uh, my little lens talk um, a 17 uh, great on TV but when you're doing a lot of handheld like we were doing not so great uh, on the big wide screen, so I had to back off to about a 20. Uh, the thing about a wide lens is that it shows you more. You have to get in closer for your close-up, and it gives you a lot of space around a person. Your longer lens is going to compress everything. I think of that as very 80s. 
kind of the MTV directors, you know, everything is uh, blurry and everything is a big headshot and everything is very glamorous because, of course, a longer lens will flatten a face and, and make it look just awfully pretty. But the fact of the matter is um, you don't get a sense of being in the space with the people. And that, to me, is the most important part. I like to compose a frame, and I love to compose a frame with just half a face in it like this. But ultimately, um, the most important thing to me is to feel like I'm there, uh, which is why I try to do things in single takes or at least carry a take for a while, let it be useful for as long as possible. But also... Um, why I like uh, a lens that's uh, not all the time, but most of the time, that's a little wider and closer in um, so that we really understand we're, we're in it with them and we're not just watching people be glamorous, although each and every one of these guys is pretty damn glamorous. And Inara emerges in another one of her outfits. Um, the idea that she had that trunk is very important for us, so she could have outfits. But um, the idea of the outfits was a little more difficult. She was probably the toughest nut to crack in terms of what she was going to wear. And in fact, that outfit um, was from Haven, which was her first day of shooting. And uh, we didn't have anything set. Uh, she came in an outfit I literally had not seen because pre-production went so fast and the outfit didn't work, and so Marina and I were literally in the trailer, uh, as we were a couple of times, uh, taking things. Here, let's let's uh, let's use this as a shawl, and then have it come down in a kind of apron statement, and she's like, oh, let's put an obi over it, and, uh, you know, we were working it together to, to try and create something that was more or less practical, but still had a little Inara flair. We should not, obviously, have been doing this on a major motion picture at the last minute, but uh, sometimes you just get caught unawares. You can see there that we brought the uh, front of the ship uh, over to the location for Haven. Um, obviously, that's all we brought um, because um, that's all we could afford. And ultimately, I thought that was all that we needed. Uh, you get the idea. I like this. I loved that shot. That's one where, again, Mr. Green pushed the camera to the right so that uh, you got those beautiful crosses on either side of her. But the idea of the burning swing, um, they had put the swing there. Uh, the production people, and I, I uh, was very excited. I think Jane Secular, the um, script coordinator, uh, pointed it out, and uh, I was like, we have to light that on fire, because I love me some fire. It crossed my mind. <laughs> I think Ron's pretty exceptional in this scene. Um, I think they both are. But Ron's is the tougher job, because the death scene where you uh, have to make the uh, important pronouncement uh, to the hero is um, unbelievably difficult not to turn into horrible cliché. And Ron, I wrote it specifically so that he would never, until he was actually physically dying, he would never sort of lose his book, wry sense of humor, and Ron played it with a lot of veracity uh, without milking it. And... Uh, you know, he gave us an extraordinary amount. Obviously, the character um, is only in the movie for these two scenes, but he has uh, such resonance and Ron has such presence that uh, he gives you what you need, which is the sense that this is the one guy that Mal truly trusts. And uh, 
his death really does something to Mal. What I like, um, and this is another example, by the way, of one of those things where um, if you can only use one shot, then why use more from here to the end of the scene is, is just the one. But uh, what I like about Mal is that his reaction to this is not, well, they've killed my friend, and so now I will enact vengeance, or I will find justice, or I will become a bat or anything like that, it's more, let's run away more. Let's run away the most. And, uh, you know, it's part of what makes Mal's journey interesting to me, is that he's always going to look for the out. Uh, when he can, he's not going to stand up uh, until something absolutely leaves him no choice. And that's, you know, what makes his character fascinating to me it was a lot of fun to have all of those monitors come on around him the idea that he's just surrounded by this guy uh, quite literally in frame was very deliberate leave no ground to go to you should have taken my offer or did you think none of this was your fault i don't murder children i do if i have to and we shot this live as well we had chuatel on stage on his set being fed to Mal uh, through video because I knew I wasn't going to shoot the exchange anywhere but from the bridge from Mal's point of view. So we were able to do it uh, with Chuatel and Nathan actually interacting, which uh, is more important than, uh, than you would ever be able to tell until you can, and then it's really embarrassing if you don't do it. What I do is evil. I have no illusions about it, but it must be done. Keep talking. That one I just think is as pretty as anything. Um, but if I go on about how pretty things are, uh, particularly either the lighting or my actors, uh, this commentary really actually will run four hours. So I'll try to shut up about that. The villain uh, says the magic word uh, and gives the hero the thing they need. Again, not to defeat them, just to outwit them. Here's another lens uh, example. Uh, we're following Mal with, uh, I think, maybe a 24 or 20. When we first uh, tried the shot out, they'll put the lens on a finder um, so that I can watch it without a camera and just walk behind him. And the tunnel was the longest tunnel I'd ever seen, and Mal looked cooler than anything because they'd put on a 14, which is the widest lens possible, by mistake. So I was like, oh, this shot is going to be perfect. And then he got out of the tunnel, and everybody looked like they were about four miles away from him. Um, and then I realized that uh, we'd made a little error, and we had the wrong lens. Again, all of this... Sir? up to that moment uh, is a wonder and that's uh, to you know in this case to increase the urgency of Mal's purpose and the coherence of his plan uh, and end with the idea of red paint saying in the low angle saying to those who haven't figured it out uh, he's talking about uh, pretending to be a reaver this is how it is that uh, gun pulling frame is is almost arch in its westernness but uh, it, it tells the story this was another, uh, the third of our unarmed men, but this is the guy who killed Book and all of his friends at Haven, and uh, he doesn't really think that there's uh, another way to handle that. So I hear a word out of any of you that ain't helping me out or taking your leave. This speech I, I just like because it's it's not particularly likable. It's not noble. Get to work. It's just probably the smartest thing to do, uh, and by virtue of that, the most dangerous. These uh, 
non-flammable skeletons, the actual flames, the actual people, getting them all together and then pulling out to this shot. Uh, uh, much more difficult uh, than, uh, than it would seem. And then so the effects company had to show us the guy on the cannon because that comes important later. And then um, they added the, the pan and following the ship because uh, the shot itself wasn't working that well. And so they reworked it uh, at their own expense to make it a little more interesting. They'll do that a lot. Now, this obviously was a cut scene uh, between Malin and Ara, but uh, what Nathan did there in that moment alone and what Jack did with the lighting there really spoke to me. Um, the idea of the simple moment when uh, the man who's making all the horrible decisions uh, has to take a moment alone to live with them. Uh, that was really the essence of the thing. I missed the scene between him and Inara, but in terms of the momentum, uh, there was just no way to save it, except in the DVD. I would like to point out this shot here of the ship being pulled apart by two other ships and the sound of the horrible screaming on the uh, uh, WW Screaming All the Time broadcast were both uh, the ideas of my assistant Michael Boritz, who during editing said, wouldn't it be scarier if? And I think they were both great ideas. They really added to the tension. We shot uh, Summer here and she looked so good in that blue, blue light that we actually reshot all of these guys. It was one of the few times during shooting that we shot something twice, but since they were all just standing there, we, uh, we had shot them so brightly they didn't match her, and we liked the light on her, so that we went back and shot them in greater darkness. Uh, and so when the light hits them, uh, and with the shadows going, and the shadows are going, by the way, because somebody is moving what's called a kukulorus. Please don't ask me why it's called a kukulorus, but it's basically cutouts moved in front of the light uh, to create the idea of motion and shadow, to put that on them. This uh, was another set that had exactly three walls and getting the crane in here, uh, actually quite difficult, but uh, we managed to make uh, the most of it, even though we had to cut the biggest scene that took place in it. You still get a feeling for it. And I really do like the design of that, his ship a great deal. We colored it. And this was something that Jack did after the fact in the uh, digital intermediate, which is where we color time the movie where we adjust the color of every single shot, um, uh, he made it very cold, and what was red became very purple, and it sort of took the life out of it, and that felt very right for the Alliance. Anything's wrong. The scanner's not reading it. What we did here with the light was um, just blast it. Obviously, uh, we're in front of the ship, which means here we're on stage. Well, something sure the hell ain't right. Here we have three people on stage and uh, a lot of CGI. And then once they uh, actually start walking through the city, we are actually on location. We're um, at the Diamond Ranch High School. I can't remember exactly what it's called. I think they shot the movie Orange County there. But we gussied it up to make it look all futury, uh, which meant taking, you know, whatever few uh, set pieces we had and moving them to wherever we were shooting all the time.
the idea here uh, was twofold. One, to overexpose slightly, and we could push that. Uh, we pushed it digitally as well once uh, we got into the intermediate. I'll pause a second to talk about that shot of River, uh, the way her dress blows out like a jellyfish around her. It's one of those found moments that you, you money can't buy, and in fact, the lack of money caused, because the reason I shot her from above like that was because we didn't have enough money for the green screen behind her. And then you get that, and uh, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you're made happy. So we're basically working with two visual ideas on Miranda. Uh, the first was to blow everything out, make it terribly bright. And that was a progression uh, from planet to planet. The first planet, Lilac, where we have an exterior during the mule chase. It's very hot and deserty. The second planet, Haven, during Book's death, we made it even hotter. We wanted it to be sort of uncomfortable. And for Miranda, we blew it out completely. We overexposed it. We pushed it in the digital timing. And that was to give the idea that Miranda represents the sort of insane optimism of of the Alliance, that there is, it's too bright, it's too perfect, there are no shadows to hide in, there's nowhere for people to be themselves, there's no texture to it. The other thing we did was affect the shutter speed. Normally a camera will run at a 180 shutter speed, we ran it at a 120 to make things a little crisper and more crystalline. It's an effect you will have seen in Saving Private Ryan or Gladiator or any war movie made recently, they'll do it at a 45 shutter speed and all of a sudden every piece of dirt that's blown out of the air is, is very visible to the eye. It's kind of hard to watch after a while. We didn't take it that far. We took it to 120 so that it's just a little bit too much. Things are too sharp and they're too bright and then when we come around river like this we can really feel the motion around her and behind her a little bit more than we would. It makes us a little uncomfortable. Her performance is, is beautiful and the moment of Jane agreeing with her that's coming up is powerful to me because once Jane agrees with River, you know something's up. But uh, mostly visually we're just trying to set the viewer off without calling attention to ourselves too much. Everybody's dead. This whole world's dead for no reason. Let's get to the beacon. That's supposed to be a ship that crashed. It occurs to me that some burn marks from where uh, it, uh, a trail would have been good. Unfortunately, it occurred to me about 14 months after we filmed it, so I suppose that should have been in pre-production. This shot actually is one that I'm extremely proud of because this set, as I mentioned, is a redress of the holographic uh, set from uh, earlier, and it's a big white room just a big round space and to make it feel creepy and to keep the camera alive we have it following different people and going around and taking us from the very beginning um, to this and uh, I think you get a sense of something sort of uh, labyrinth and, and um, kind of uh, sort of unknowable even though where we were was actually quite a sort of um, open and bland space it's well dressed but uh, we had to keep it open because we had to do uh, this. This is uh, camera move. We had motion control and a memory head. Motion control means you can do a camera move and then do the exact same move. I believe it was pioneered on the fly by David Cronenberg for a shot of the uh, monkey disappearing in the uh, machine. And uh, we used it. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, we shot this originally with a different actress. 
a, a really good actress, but who was unfortunately wrong for the part. And uh, so I asked them if they were going to keep the motion control data, and they said, we will have it on a disc until your DVD comes out, just in case. So we shot it with another actress, and uh, through no fault of hers, it just didn't have the right feeling. I felt like what I need is somebody that you just believe and love because what she has to say is really the most important thing in the movie and you need to be rooting for her even though she's done something terrible the moment you see her and again Sarah Paulson um, I'm a fan of from Down With Love which I think is a terribly underrated movie and as I said with Michael Hitchcock uh, I will go to comedy uh, to find my dramatic actors now obviously she has a great dramatic resume but she wasn't that well known and I don't think people were sure about her and then she came on and Doing it on green screen means doing it, you know, in a room surrounded by green curtains alone. And she uh, gave an extraordinary performance and really embodied what I needed. But um, that performance didn't exist when all of these people were reacting to it. And I always regretted that uh, she couldn't be there. But because of the timing, we had to do it after we shot this scene of everybody dealing with it. We shot this, uh, and uh, as we were summer's side here, and I have to give a little shout to that musical resolve from David Newman. You know, he's been playing that theme for so long, and then he resolves it on a different note, which says she really is saner. It's a beautiful little piece of work, and uh, there's so much I could say about what David Newman did for this movie, but that, to me, is one where I just grin every time I hear it. The whole universe of folk are going to know it, too. They're going to see it. Somebody has to speak for these people. And, uh, obviously, it takes us to, well, I'm not going to mince words here, the St. Crispian's Day speech. Everybody's got one. Uh, possibly too many people have them, but, um... To me, uh, I really wanted to take Mal to that place. And as you can see, I was not afraid to light things almost avant-gardely manipulative way. A year from now, 10, they'll swing back to the belief that they can make... You almost can't see him for the light that's streaming down. Now, that makes sense to an extent because they're parked on Miranda where the light is much too hard. But I also wanted to say, not just Mal has found a purpose, but we have found a movie. This is a movie. He's going to step into the light and he's going to say something cool. And they're all going to get behind him. And I had thought about writing a whole scene where one by one they say, Oh, I'm, a, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. I realized if Jane's in, the most amoral character in the movie, then everybody is. And you don't need to say it. And that's, you know, and the fact that he gives Simon a drink says the people who, you know, would have the least to do with each other are all united here. We still got the reverse and probably the alliance between us and him. That's too hard to add a little ADR here about reminding people that their ship doesn't have guns because people just expect ships to have guns. No. They're not going to see this coming. And the dramatic cut to the engines. I really, again, felt like, uh, you know, their situation required something of a, an extraordinary plan and uh, 
one of the most gratifying things in watching this in, in previews was when people figured out what the plan was. And you can hear some people figure it out right away, some people just before it happens, some people when it happens, but it's always gratifying when uh, people get excited about uh, the one thing that, uh, that might save them is the fact that everybody is dangerous. I am, of course, referring to the, uh, the Reavers uh, attacking the Alliance. Originally, I didn't show the operative killing Mr. Universe. Uh, in conversations with Chuatel during rehearsals, he asked me if I could. Uh, he said, uh, Mal is getting to this guy, and I'd like to show that. I'd like to show him do something that's a little less reasonable than he's used to. And um, I agreed. I thought that was a good, uh, a good idea. And uh, in various incarnations, it came and went. But ultimately, I thought it was the right thing to do. That's the best thing about the rehearsal process, and I would say this because uh, I had never had one uh, in television, not one like this. We had weeks of, well, two weeks, but that's still plural, weeks of rehearsal to really sort of figure out what the characters felt and what they were doing, and, and everybody brought such insight to their character that uh, the movie is, is much better and much more textured for it. Now! This was very specific. I was like, I want something that, uh, you know, has big old blades, something that looks, that unfurls, that looks like it's going to attack them and attack them physically. The more we could physicalize the Reaver ships and make them kind of uh, so low tech, they're almost like, you know, swords, um, the more fun we'll have. And this is the point at which a lot of people began to realize, oh, the uh, deadly yet antiseptic uh, alliance is about to get a taste of its own medicine, uh, which to me is um, not only thematic, but uh, gratifying in terms of films. This is where the ion cloud came from, of course, because I needed to have uh, the Indians ride over the hill and surprise the cavalry. And since you can't do that in space, I had an ion cloud, which takes us back to sort of Wrath of Khan-style space, but um, I'm not ashamed. I don't know what an ion cloud is. I don't care. For this moment, I would give up many things, including logic or knowledge of any science, which actually I gave up at about age 15. this sequence well this sequence you know i think nearly killed a lot of us and i don't actually mean the actors i, I really mean uh, in post-production trying to figure out uh from what we had where everybody was and what they were doing it was very difficult uh but it really does belong to wash and whenever i would shoot wash the harpoon gag was one that uh, was very difficult to realize but which i felt embodied how the reavers fight that explosion on Mal's face actually came from the fact that when we originally conceived the sequence, there was going to be sun on one side of them. Then the sun was gone, but I still had that blinding yellow light. So we blew it out uh, momentarily and added the sound of that explosion to justify it. Things like that, uh, you know, thinking on your feet, uh, even at the last minute, uh, that's what makes this uh, so much fun. And by fun, I mean exhausting. 
no, yes, no. Yes. That was uh, the no, yes, no, yes was one that I threw in on the day. I had a couple of other lines, uh, but uh, I just thought that would be charming. And, and of course, between the two of them, uh, it inevitably was. Star Trek moment. Everybody fall down. Nothing's really shaking. We did our best to hide that fact um, by uh, changing the lights and uh, shaking things up. I do love his escape pod very much. If you watch carefully, you can actually see the lighting tubes that Jack and the gaffer are swinging uh, next to um, his head because that's basically how they lit the entire thing. They took some fluorescent tubes and they just waved them around near him as uh, he sat in that chair. And then we turned it upside down. Every now and then, you go to the cheese, and I loves me some cheese. We're not alone. Now, here's a sequence that owes a lot to the effects house, because um, when they showed me the previs, they had done the tailspin, which uh, they go into uh, in a moment. And um, I uh, hadn't shot the sequence yet, and the tailspin um, really, uh, really hits home the idea that they are out of power. And uh, it gives you a, a very known sense, because we've seen it in with jets and in real life and in air movies. So uh, it, um, and it's a chance to throw Jane all over the place, which is always funny. Um, but it, uh, more than anything, really gave you the sense that these guys are completely out of control. That came from the house, and seeing it, I then shot everyone uh, according to it, um, which is, you know, one of the things that really helps when you're in sync uh, before these things uh, are actually done. Shooting a lot of ideas came after the fact, and uh, that's a lot more difficult to achieve because you have to see if you if you have the footage you need. I think that was the problem with the mule skiff chases. Some of the things I wanted uh, when we were shooting, I just assumed I couldn't have. And sometimes you should shoot something just to cover yourself. If you never have uh, the chance to use it, you still want the option because the worst thing is to say, you know what, if we had this shot, we could do a thing. We have the money and special effects, and then you don't have the shot. Uh, this, by the way, is our only real miniature work uh, from the moment of crashing and all through here. This is actually a miniature that was built of the ship. It's uh, the only exterior of the ship that's non-CGI, although we added uh, the sparks and uh, the exploding um, engine, which was added by Illusion Arts uh, as a little Christmas present, actually. It was very exciting for us to come in and see the miniature set and the miniature ship that's... Uh, I like to say kicking it old school. I'm a leaf on the wind. Watch how Everybody always laughs during this sequence, you know? It's funny and it's cute and it's kind of sexy. The funniest thing about it, of course, was Alan was constantly making jokes. Uh, and obviously we were together on this decision of what to do with his character, i.e. kill it. But he would always make jokes like, uh, my script only goes up to page 105. Uh, it's weird. It's, I, don't, I don't have any pages for after that. And I'd say, I, oh, I just, that's the end. It just ends there. You guys land, it's, it's a happy ending. He's like, oh, good, okay, fine. He was a lot more good-humored about it than uh, many people who, his, who were his fans were, and uh, 
it's a very upsetting thing. It was not in my first draft. Um, it's a terrible thing to do to a guy. I did it for a very specific reason, and that was to make you think that this could be a wild bunch. This could be a, you know, we all go down trying to work this one by one um, so that every time somebody else got shot, like Simon or whatever, you really would believe they were going down. And uh, Wash's death accomplishes that. Without it, you just don't have the same kind of stakes, and you don't have this arc for Zoe. So it's something that uh, obviously some people disagreed very strongly with, but I think narratively was terribly important. Wait, Wash, where's Wash? He ain't coming. Now to get to where we are, which I like to call Disney Hall Junior, the Black Room was designed um, for the siege and uh, designed very specifically. And you'll see, or you have seen, since I was talking over at the shot where they, they come in and we go all around the room and down the hall and back. And that was like with the introduction of the ship, um, like with the long shot, uh, CGI shot to Mr. Universe, uh, a way of saying, this is our space, get to know it, because uh, we're going to live here, and it, it matters, and to give it kind of an epic sense. It's not a huge space, it's not supposed to be, but it is sort of big enough for the big epic battle, yet small enough for the claustrophobic uh, scariness of what is ultimately a zombie fight. And uh, I like the design of it a great deal. The blast doors obviously are key because they will lead to the infamous uh, reveal of River, which is one of those shots that I write the movie for. Good job, sir. Behold. Hold till I get back. This, again, is an opportunity to do things in one. Not because it's fancy, just because everything works. She passes off to these guys. They've look more pathetic than they ever have and should they pass off to uh, what is probably the funniest moment in the show uh, I love the idea that Jane's thought that he might be the only one to survive is perfectly comforting to him I love these fish uh, Ruby Stillwater, a second AD, took them home named them Mal and Zoe I love them particularly because we didn't actually have an elevator uh, we just had doors, so that's why uh, I shot the doors through the fishbowl. I wasn't trying to be artsy, although I will if I can. Um, I just had to hide the fact that uh, we didn't have an elevator, and what better way to do that than with fish? Mel. Guy killed me, Mel. He killed me with a sword. How weird is that? This was um, one of the last days, either the, the last two days of filming were, were Mr. Universe. This was, in fact, the very last day of filming. We talked about it, and Nathan said, uh, I want to touch him as I'm hearing this. And I'm like, you, you want to touch him? He's like, yeah, I like this guy. This guy got stabbed and then crawled over here. He's getting it done with his dying breath. Mal likes this guy. And that's how Nathan would talk about Mal. He'd say, Mal likes this. Mal cares about this guy. Mal, Mal doesn't stand for that. Uh, when they talk about their characters that way, when they become them that way, it's, it's very beautiful. Jules' only uh, conflict with me was when I said, you toss that piece of machinery in 
uh, during her scene with Jane, uh, where they're talking and he's tossing machinery into the bay doors and into the airlock. And she looked at it and she said, toss this, but it's, it's great. This would work. I should keep this. And it was, she was, she was Kaylee in that moment. And I was like, okay, instead of tossing it, you should admire it and fiddle with it, which is what she did. Spent so much time Those were always key. I wanted Gina and I, uh, if we're going to talk about conflict, had what I would say was our only conflict. Well, the only one I'm admitting to. Over this scene, over this area, how much would she show her mourning for Wash? And I said, I want you to keep it all in. I want you to keep it all in. And she was like, I just... You know, I, I don't want to seem like a robot. It, the transition is weird. It was it was tough. And then we got to, well, you've got to, we've got to get you attacking those guys and you're going to stab a guy. When you stab him, that's when you'll, uh, that's when you'll show it. And, uh, well, she certainly did. And afterwards she said, you know, thank you for hearing me. And she was right. Uh, she did need that. As I was editing the movie, I, I saw more and more that she, she did need some kind of release, some kind of mourning besides, uh, the, the funeral that was to come. Now, I've talked right over, uh, obviously, the great uh, Kaylee, I'm going to live moment. And there, by the way, is the CGI um, weapon that we gave to Inara. If you look carefully, she does have a bow uh, when she's in the back of the frame, but we took the color out of it so you can't see it and took the string out of her face. And here, Rhythm and Hughes uh, was given the job of designing this, uh, the generator shaft, and uh, did a, a really good job of making it seem like the jaws of death uh, without making it seem like it had no purpose. Uh, you do believe that it, in fact, uh, would run this place. And at the last minute, they created the gun that um, Inara, because... Um, because the bow and arrow was just not registering. This stabbing is what I'm talking about. It gets her out of the way so he can shoot, and it gives her a chance to just go to town on one of these guys uh, and let loose everything that she was not expressing before. The best thing, the best thing about doing this, um, believe me when I say it's not the effects. They're, you know difficult at best. Uh, the best thing is is what the actors bring you when you disagree or find something unexpected and sometimes you know I like to think that I'm right uh, but uh, I would watch some of this and I'd do eight takes of something and then use the first one because the actors knew their characters so well obviously uh, what we have here is a very simple western standoff uh, Mal has now become someone who believes, but more importantly, the good guy and the bad guy are standing there. We shot them with a 14 to put as much distance between them as possible on this shot. And uh, it's it's the quick draw. Um, I didn't use a lot of totally Western conventions in this, although the movie has been described as a sci-fi Western. But in that instance, I absolutely did. It's very simple. He's a faster draw. Those shots looking down, you know, this is uh, also a question of, of, of budget. Uh, we had five. 
they said in the budget you can look down at the jaws of death exactly five times and if you watch the movie you'll see that i spaced them out very specifically once to reveal it once when mal might fall in it uh once when something gets knocked in it to uh see that actually doesn't count as its own one because uh we had the shot and then we split it up we actually intercut these things they were intercut in the script but we intercut them even more in editing anyway once when he's um when he knocks over the case so we see what happens if you fall in the jaws of death once to reestablish the space and then finally as mal leaves and you know knowing exactly when we were going to do that uh, there's our third of the five keeps you going exactly as much as you need now special effects cannot buy you uh nathan fillion throwing his face into plexiglass uh luckily uh nathan uh, will do that for you himself uh at the drop of a hat and so that's useful i also love uh the cutting um in this sequence where things just get worse and worse and worse uh, a shout out also to our extraordinary sound guys because uh the I watched this scene many times and I thought it was beautifully edited, but um, uh, I listened to it uh, towards the end of the final mix and was like, I'm feeling something I haven't felt and I don't know what it is and realized it was fear. The sounds they created for the Reavers, which is, the, again, the hardest thing. When I talked about uh, hiding intent, they had to be human, but not human. They had to sound like humans who had strained their vocal points past the point of coherence. Um, but not sound like vampires, not sound like demons. It was very important to find a sound that was specific. And they had a dozen actors and, and uh, really good actors. Um, in a room at a time making you know stepping up one by one and making these incoherent garbling sounds of pure rage and uh it could be very very intense sean taking his own fall because uh, sean any chance he gets to do a stunt he will take as well he loves to do that adrenaline and and this is what I was talking about before. Um, the death of Wash makes you believe, and Book makes you believe that, uh, well, you know, this guy, he might just pick them all off one by one. It might be that kind of movie. The sequence was really the end of shooting for everybody in the sequence. Nathan was the only one still working after this. And... Um, this scene, the only problem we had with the sound was on uh, Sean's coverage, and it's because Summer was weeping. Uh, we did, I think, two takes on Sean. He was so good. And the relationship between them that had been built from the very start of the first episode of the show three years ago was all played out in that moment, and he absolutely just sent her sobbing. We had to wait to do her coverage until she recovered uh, because she was crying too much. It was really beautiful. And um, this, of course, is again there to say, oh, it's not uh, Simon who's going to die, it's River. She's making the sacrifice play there are establishing to take us back into what was, you know, as a, a different kind of epic fight. You saw in there uh, one of uh, the little things I always like to add. 
Why hasn't he drawn his sword, is the question. This was in the script, obviously, Mal's tiny screwdriver, and that worked out just great. But uh, the uh, why hasn't he drawn his sword, I answered by having him start to draw it and Mal giving him a chop in the armpit, which can be really painful. Uh, not as painful as being stabbed, admittedly. But um, to me, that kind of thing uh, is a little unexpected. It adds a little reality, and it answers a question. Guy has a sword. Why hasn't he used it? Oh, and then let's use the little screwdriver to stab him in the leg, pull him forward into the hit. And let's cut around the fact that Mal's been stabbed. We had much more Mal has been stabbed. But uh, it wasn't just a question of rating. It was actually a question of believability. If you thought that he'd been totally run through, then honestly, uh, why is he walking around now? It's easy to say that medicine is better in the future, and he does say that the operative patches up his hurt later on, but the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, he's walking and walking, laughing and scratching after he's been stabbed. So we minimized the stabbing so that it was a little more believable to the audience. I really like to hurt my heroes. I like to put them through everything. I think it's well known, uh, well documented that uh, Nathan was in fact throwing his face into the plexiglass uh, deliberately and he did it six times for that other shot. Uh, and then his face swelled up admirably. Uh, these close-ups of him, by the way, were the last thing I got on that reshoot day. Uh, since I had it and we finished so quickly, I said, you know, the part where uh, we think he's paralyzed by the operative, if I had a close-up of his hand and his face, it would really help. And so they ran out. And, and I didn't say this before we shot it. I said it when I realized we had time. I think it really helps give the sequence a little more oomph. See your famous last words right now. Just one trouble. People really seem to appreciate the idea. Again, I think it's because you give them something to hold on to, an explanation of the idea that his nerve cluster uh, had been moved. Um, and that's why um, the operative's favorite trick didn't work on him. This is the most important line. I'm going to show you a world without sin in the film to me because honestly uh, the film is really about something it's about the right to be wrong it's about the idea that uh, you, know, you cannot impose your way of thinking on people even if your way of thinking is more enlightened and better than theirs it's just simply not how human beings are and you take that further and you say the idea of sin is in fact outmoded uh, is in fact more archaic than anything that Mal believes in uh, when he says I'm a fan of all seven and let's take a moment to appreciate how that uh, gives slightly as he walks on it. I love that. Our last look down moment. Um, he's saying that sin is just what people are. It's been codified. It's been given a name. But all of those things we take as faults are also the source of pleasure and decency. And we should uh, perhaps rethink it. Now, this is another Summer Glau oneer. Uh, she's doing all of this in one. And believe me when I say she had prepared to do a lot more. But for the momentum of the film, I had to end the shot at some point. That's an incredibly heroic thing, but it's also by virtue of her being a dancer and Mark Moore, the cameraman, being a bit of a dancer himself because he's circling her the whole time. So we worked out the fight they had given us and then found a pocket for Mark to get into to go all around her the whole time. Uh, that also contains uh, the great... Um, Jack Green lighting of throwing a spot on her and two spots around her and just waving them around. Um, you don't notice it at the time, 
but it gives it a very expressionistic feel, um, which feels right for what River's going through, even if it doesn't make logical sense, because River herself doesn't make logical sense. And here we have the hero shot, and I have never used that term more literally in my life. We designed the entire set and the entire sequence for this moment. It has been pointed out to me that uh, I have a problem uh, making fiction that doesn't have superpowered adolescent girls in it. I don't care. Um, I think that's one of the sweetest things that I ever shot, and it makes me very happy. Here we uh, overexposed Summer again and, and pushed it as far as we could. I think it makes it very intense and, and makes her look very intense uh, uh, to have it that unnaturally bright. Uh, it reminds me of um, Goodwill Hunting, the close-ups of Matt Damon when uh, Robin Williams is talking to him. Uh, it's almost uh, artsy, uh, but in context of a big light shining on her, you wouldn't necessarily recognize it as such. That whole sequence uh, did not exist. Originally, it went off on somebody about to pull the trigger, and you found out after the funeral what had happened. But audiences weren't really keying into that. So it was the advice of, again, the invaluable Mary Parent, the executive on the thing, to actually hear him say stand down and understand that they had won because people were confused. Some people thought the movie was over. Some people thought uh, that there had been a big fight and she'd killed everybody. But uh, we didn't actually have footage of everybody reacting to him saying stand down. So her look back to Mal is, uh, I think, either reversed or taken after the fact. And those men putting their guns down, they're actually putting their guns down because I said cut. And we slowed it down and they have a new uh, process whereby they can smooth it out. And if you look carefully, by the way, in the left-hand frame, uh, somebody's putting down not a gun, but a camera. Uh, but luckily it blows through pretty fast. The funeral sequence, uh, obviously, it used to be a little bit longer, but um, you know we realized we did have to finish the movie at some point. But uh, it was one of the first things we shot with a lot of the cast, and as far out as we went to get that. And again, a Jack Green moment, because uh, we shot it at sunset, it was very windy, the light was very bright on them, uh, but very dramatic, and he said, we have to shoot one right after the sun goes below. And I said, okay, we'll try it. And it turned out to be the most beautiful light that I've ever seen on people. And we had to shoot it so fast, but nobody had to speak, no sound. And uh, it was kind of a glorious time for everybody. It was a lot of people's first day and the return to the movie and the vista, even if it was a little dry, it was very beautiful. And, and just to see them all standing there and to have, you know, an unabashedly Western moment to, to honor the dead in that movie was uh, very thrilling. I can't guarantee that they won't come after you, the Parliament. Your Broadway of about Miranda has weakened their regime, but they are not gone. And they are this is a thing where, uh, again, Jack and I are very much in sync. He said, I've put no light on Chuatel's face. I've put light on either side of him, but I've kept him in darkness. And I absolutely loved that because, you know, he's gone. He's a shadow. Um, he's lost himself completely. This is another thing, and I even had them take the light off his back there, uh, where it was a little bit bright, um, so that he would be nothing but a shadow. 
because he's lost his belief system. And unlike Mal, he's not the kind of person who can live through that. It happened to Mal. Mal went on. It happened to him. He doesn't. He drifts away. And I, I find that kind of beautiful. It makes me respect him in a way more than I ever did. And for the hero to convince the bad guy that he's wrong, to me, is a lot more powerful than just killing him. This was a sequence uh, that uh, um, in rehearsal, Gina said, uh, now this conversation about the ship, this is about me. And so how do you want me to play it? And I said, well, yes, obviously it's about you. So what I want, and Nathan just looked up and said, wait, what? I'm sorry, it's, it's what? This is, a, it's about her? And he looked back, he's like, I totally missed that. Um, and he's very astute about what goes on and what the subtext is. And he had totally not gotten that they were talking about her. But uh, uh, obviously by the time we shot, he'd figure that out. Um, and they play it beautifully. I love this resolve between them because uh, it's not flying into each other's arms. It's just extremely sweet. It holds the promise of something. Um, and it's tough because, you know, I have so many people to resolve and uh, so much to do. Uh, Nathan and I would joke about uh, the scene with Chuatel uh, downstairs where he'd say, uh, I basically said, uh, listen, uh, you want to speed it up a little, pal? Because I got to go comfort a grieving widow, talk to a whore and then teach an underage girl about love. Um, you know, he's got to deal with all of uh, these people on his crew who happen to be all women. For this resolve to work, let's note the rain that uh, the Zoic, the CGI people, put on the lens in that takeoff. I love that very much. And uh, uh, it is kind of an odd structure to end a movie, especially an action movie, but uh, this has always been about the people on this ship. And the resolve here is that Mal is saying something he could never have said. And when she says, I like to hear you say it, um, she specifically means say it out loud because at the beginning of this movie you couldn't have i couldn't have understood it necessarily and you couldn't have said it and they are the two people who have found themselves the most and found the freedom that they need um, nathan said i don't know how i'm going to do this speech about love um, after the fact he said i was a little worried about it it sounded maybe a little bit hokey he said i got on set he said, I turned, I looked into those two eyes, he said, and that's where that speech came from. Because uh, the energy he got off Summer just staring at her uh, gave him that speech. And that's why I love this crew so much. The way they, they work off each other and with each other. They were a family. This was a home. Uh, it may be the kind that, uh, as uh, I constantly restate, is falling apart. Uh, but it's a home nonetheless. I'm done talking. Watch the credits. Mm -hmm.